as you know, we spent two years going through the book of Mark. We've now finished the book of Mark, and beginning after the first of the year, we're going to be directing our attention to going verse by verse through the book of Ephesians, for which we will be in no hurry. But that gives us a few weeks, and frankly, it's, it's very rare in my own life that I get to just think, in consultation with the elders, what, what are some things that we should think about? What are some things that we, we need to address? What, what, uh, what are some spiritual nutrients that we need to kind of vitamin up on? And in talking with them, I'm going to do a week or two here just on some matters related to ecclesiology, some matters related to church life, especially in the time with which we find ourselves. If you'd like a title for this morning, we're going to be talking about a unified church in a divided world or a divided culture. And I think that when we look at a text that I want to direct your attention to in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you can begin finding your way there, I think you're going to find that we are not too different from them. Not a lot has changed. As Solomon says, there is nothing new under the sun. And the issues that Paul addressed to the church at Corinth is no doubt the same as the issues he would address with us. Now, as you're turning there, just a little background, a little reminder to you about Corinth. Corinth is an interesting city. It was literally at the pinch of an hourglass. And what I mean by that is there are two seas separated by a seven-mile landmass at basically an hourglass pinch that comes together. On top of that pinch was the, the mainland of Greece, not very far from Athens. And on the bottom of that was Sparta, or the Peloponnesus, And what you literally have is the crossroads of two seas and two land masses, and it was an extremely cosmopolitan city. It's been described as the Las Vegas, Los Angeles, London, um, uh, Rome of its day. It was a city like no other. And Paul spent some time there. Paul wrote letters there, at least four letters that we know of, had a relationship with his church. He begins this letter with, after nine verses of commendation, in verse 10, he begins what one commentator calls 16 chapters of a spiritual spanking. And that is no doubt the truth. He uh, is is correcting, he's encouraging, but always with the nuance that behavior is leveraged, behavior is changed, church is moved along by theology. It's always attached to gospel truth and gospel reality. So after those first nine verses of commendation, that's the rose among the thorns, as we can think of it, chapter 1, verse 10, really begins the substance of the corrective part of his epistle. This is, without getting into great detail, um, at least his second letter. It's kind of funny. When you look at the the two Corinthians, you have to think of two and four, not one and two. There was a letter that they wrote, Paul responds to that letter, and that's what we have as 1 Corinthians. Even though there's a letter, we have 1 Corinthians. Then there was another letter, which we call the severe letter, and then there was 2 Corinthians, which is really the fourth letter. If that's not confusing enough, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree... And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I've been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now, I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I 
am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, or Peter, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say that you were baptized in my name. Now, now I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void, empty. The Bible is relentless in its emphasis on the beauty and benefits of unity. It's equal in its emphasis on the devastation and danger of division among the people of God. Psalm 133, verse 1, you know it well. Behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. God looks at believers dwelling together and when they are getting along and dwelling in unity, he says it's beautiful, it's a pleasing aroma to himself. On the last night of his earthly ministry, Jesus had unity as a significant accent in the final lessons that he was telling his men. John 17, 11, I am no longer in the world and yet they themselves are in the world, the disciples, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be even as we are. Unified in solidarity. Just a few verses later, verse 21 of John 17, that they may be as one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Do you understand what he's saying? Our solidarity as believers is as important as the solidarity that exists within the Trinity, and that becomes our mirror, our, our paradigm to look into for unity. We are to be as unified as believers as is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Listen to the testimony of our faith and our evangelism. John 17, 23. In them, I in them and you in me, Jesus says, that they may be perfected, matured in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus said earlier in chapter 13, they will know that you love me when they love each other. The world sees us loving each other. In other words, the foundation of gospel evangelism from the people in the church of Jesus' blood-bought body is based on unity. Basically, Jesus is saying in John 13, why would you want to evangelize anyone who would want to come and be a part of a group who couldn't get along, who could not agree, who didn't love each other, who were not unified? Friends, without unity, we have no credibility that the evangelism that we're offering has done anything in our lives. This burden for the unity of believers 
The unity of the body of Christ is not only that of the psalmist, the Lord Jesus Christ, but it also gripped Paul himself. He always seems to find a place in his letters for an eloquent appeal to unity. In his letter to the Philippians, one of his most remarkable pleas is this, found in chapter 1, verse 27. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or remain absent, I may hear that you are standing firm, one in spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So it's our evangelistic platform. It's also the foundation for our theological expression and our care pastorally one for the other. What I want us to do this morning is to rally our hearts around this design and desire of our Lord himself that we be unified, that we be undivided, that we fight division, that we fight preferences that that could come between us. Next year will mark my 40th year in pastoral ministry. And though I cannot say that I've seen it all, I can say I've seen a lot. And without question, the last seven months in this crazy year of 2020 are, are among the most stressing and unsettling times I have seen in the church at large, in greater evangelicalism worldwide and in America, and also in our own church. We've been dealing with fears and disruptions related to COVID-19. We've had to deal with opinions that are varied on social justice issues, on racism, on adjustment to our jobs and having to work from home and differing work environments. Working on internal church life issues through Zoom, of all things. Corporate worship through live stream only, then three services, now two services. And won't it be a great day when we're back to one? I can't wait for that. Then there's the issue of wearing masks, social distancing, resistance to handshaking, to hugging, to high-fiving. Is that a verb, high-fiving? Even the simple human touch. One of my friends, dear little friends, Hallie Mulder came up a few weeks ago and said, hey, Pastor Rick in the atrium. And she came and grabbed my leg like a tree trunk and gave me a hug. And my first thought was, is this Okay. These are hard times. Add on to all of that the on-ramp on which we find ourselves for a very contentious election. In our world is, is a level of disunity and disagreement and debate, frankly, like I've not seen in my lifetime. Opinions collide. They create divisions in our culture. But more importantly, sometimes those are smuggled into Christ's church when we come together and bring our preferences and disagreements. It's tempting to think that Fox News and Facebook qualify us to be scientific expert and political pundits, and it's almost humorous. I read a report, I saw a TV show, I heard a guy say, and now we're experts. And then there are other pastors in Christendom and 
other Christian leaders in other churches and in other states and in other countries exerting uninvited influence on our hearts that can compete with local church leadership on how we're trying to navigate these issues. Paul was clear. Excuse me, Peter was clear. 1 Peter 5, shepherd the flock of God where? Among you. All this becomes tempting. It's tempting to pledge allegiance to things that are not our loving Savior. Those are important issues. They all have biblical ramifications. They all have biblical implications by which we would apply our lives to them. But they're not our loving Savior. Now, before you stop and say, oh, this is the worst it's ever been, can I suggest that the church at Corinth was no different? The church at Corinth was nowhere close to the unity that the Lord required and the apostle desired, and he begins the first admonition in his letter with a plea against disunity and disagreement and a plea for unity. Corinth was divided. As I said, it was at that pinch point, that hourglass, the middle of an hourglass. Two seas, two land masses. It was incredibly cosmopolitan, multicultural, multi-languages. There was division between rich and poor. This is just what we discern from Paul's letter, letters. There was a division between rich people and poor people, between slaves and free, between cultured and barbaric, between Jews and Gentiles, between the educated and uneducated, between Greeks and non-Greeks. And Paul says that that church, those people who belonged to that assembly should have been starkly different from that pagan value system and these divisions and yet... What existed in the culture had made its way into the assembly at Corinth. If you boil it all down, all of 1 Corinthians and all of 2 Corinthians are attacking two problems they had. They were confused and they were contaminated. And in that order, their confusion about theological realities, about how theology is for life, about how everything that we decide and everything we do and everything we think and every response we have is a reflex of our theology. Their confusion about theology led them to be contaminated by bringing the world's values, the world's divisions into the church. And I would suggest, friends, that confusion and contamination still coexist as our greatest threats. Confused about their spiritual allegiances, contaminated by the society's values, and that all came in to Sunday morning when they met. Now, Paul, as you might imagine, does not tiptoe around this problem. Right out of the gate. After nine verses of commendation, the first thing he does in the next 15 and a half chapters of correction is to attempt to correct their disunity. One of the most damaging torpedoes to the effectiveness of you individually and our church corporately is the reality of division. The great enemy of the church's mission and purpose is disunity. Now, now, I don't know if you've thought about this before, but you as a Christian were designed, you, were, you, you have spiritual DNA designed for battle. 
battle against Satan and his minions, battle against the world and its values. If we're not fighting the right enemy, we will fight each other. You're designed to fight. If you're not fighting the right enemy, look around. That's where you will express God's militant desire to fight the right things and you'll transfer them to the wrong people. The church at Corinth found themselves fighting each other. And Paul addresses it right at the very beginning of the letter. You could actually look at this, these verses, verses 10 to 17, and it's a manual on how to keep your church from splitting. Many would think, oh, I would never split a church. Well, disagreements are the seeds, are the acorns that grow into oaks. And Paul tells us how to approach that. So let's look briefly, and I really do mean briefly at this passage, and highlight together two threats to the unity of Christ's body. Two threats to the unity of Christ's body. Please, I'm gonna ask you to personalize these. All of us will hear these and think of someone for whom they would easily apply. And you're right. But remember, someone is probably thinking that you ought to apply this as well. So let's just look to ourselves. Two threats to the unity of Christ's body. The first is divided thinking. Divided thinking. Divided worldviews, you could even say. Paul says in verse 10, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree. (laughs) And there be no divisions among you, that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Paul starts with the phrase, now I exhort you. That's a word that we've talked about many times in the past. It's parakaleo, call alongside. It's the word that is made into a noun as the paraclete, the Holy Spirit. In John 14 and 16 is the Parakaleo one, the one who comes alongside us. And the best illustration I can give you of what this verse means is it has negative and positive dimensions. When I was in high school, I ran track and I uh, ran the mile and the two mile. And I remember we would get in those long eight mile, eight, eight lap, uh, two mile runs and my coach would be out in the center field of the track and sometimes he would come to me with very negativistic encouragement. You've got to catch that guy this lap right now. And the other times, it's you're looking great, you're looking good. Both of those are para alongside calling kaleo. They're coming alongside. Paul's doing that. I exhort you, brethren, I'm getting in your kitchen, but I'm encouraging you at the same time. And then he brings the full force of divinity into his accountability by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Any one of those names would have worked. Any two of those names could have worked. You know what he does? Kurios, the Lord, Jesus, the man from Nazareth, the God-man, Christ, the Messiah. He puts it all stacking up a level of accountability that ought to get our attention And what's the command? That you all agree. It literally means that that you say the same thing, you speak the same thing is the Greek word. Now he's not talking about speaking in unison, but rather 
claiming open allegiance to the same source. He's not saying we agree on everything. We are not going to agree that mushrooms are a viable source of edible content. You and I aren't. And if you're going to lunch this afternoon and you eat mushrooms, we are praying for you. Our prayer room is open at the end. We can certainly serve you in that way. We're not going to agree that that, that we like mushrooms. We're not going to agree that we like Tennessee or Missouri, even though they played football yesterday and won team one. We're not going to agree on preferences. This is not what he's saying. I exhort you that you all agree not on preferences and everything, that we all agree on our primary allegiance, our primary loyalty is directed together at the one who died to save us, the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I give you a little footnote? There's an old phrase I learned as a young man. You've probably used it. You've no doubt heard it. Let's just agree to disagree. That's okay for your college football team and whether you like mushrooms or not. That's not okay within the body of Christ about theological issues. We don't agree to disagree. We agree to sit on the same side of the table with an open Bible and continue to study a day, a week, a month, a year, a decade until we die trying to come to agreement with loving kindness and friendship and charity and graciousness. He's responding to disagreements in the church that actually begot, began to be personal, as we'll see in a moment. It climaxes, the verse does, by, by saying there, there should be no divisions, no, 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 literally it's no tearing apart, and at the end, but that you be made complete. It, it, there's a word picture going on in the original. That you not rip apart, but you mend back together. The word for made complete is a word that was used for healing of bones and resetting bones and also mending nets, fishing nets. Knit together. In other words, Paul is calling the Corinthians to a life of peacemaking and peacekeeping. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. It's not always popular. I remember my dad in his typical marine-trained fashion used to say, Ricky, you ever try to separate two dogs that are fighting, you're the one that's gonna get bit. And he's right. But Jesus still and Paul still call us back to be peacemakers. Even goes further, we're to be complete in the same judgment. Now, now th- th- that doesn't mean that we, we agree on every NFL team. What that means is we are making judgments about theology, about what we believe, as we'll see in verse 17, about the gospel itself. It's a common commitment to a common creed in theology. And folks, this takes patient communication. It takes speaking and listening. We're typically pretty good at articulation and not so good at listening. You know how you can tell that? This is one of my besetting sins is when before a person finishes articulating what they think or believe, we cut them off to interject something. There was a man I knew in Los Angeles who was one of the wisest men I'd ever been around. His name was Fred. And he was so, he listened so well that you would say something 
and there would be like a gap and you feel uncomfortable you feel like you need to say something else and so you keep saying and saying and saying and he's smiling I said well are you going to say anything Fred he says I I just want to hear everything you have to say before I know what I'm going to say there's some wisdom in that that's different than arguing complaining gossiping and slandering the Lord's bondservant is kind. He's not quarrelsome. Able to teach. Speak and listen when we're moving toward agreement on theological values and principles. And by the way, all of those things I talked about in the beginning that have caused division have theological Pillars and theological implications. But let's get more specific. The second threat to the unity of Christ's body is in verses 11 to 17. Divided allegiances, and this is where it gets very, very personal. Divided allegiances. The first thing he highlights in these divided allegiances are disagreements about leaders. Disagreements about spiritual Leaders. Paul says, For I have been informed concerning you. Someone's told on you. But this wasn't tattletaling. This was a genuine report. And we find out it's by Chloe's people. We don't know if this was a lady who did it herself or Chloe's people. This was her, her family. Who this is isn't as important as the report. What's the report? End of verse 11. That there are quarrels among you. You're disagreeing. You're fighting. You're disunified. Now, in typical Pauline fashion, before someone can say, what do you mean? He says, now I mean this. Verse 12. That each one of you is saying, now listen to these. They're a little... They're not as easy to understand as at face value unless you look a little closer. I am of Paul. Paul had been there. Paul had written to them from Ephesus. Paul had, had discipled there. He had been on trial there. He had stood before the Bema seat there. He had had a relationship with, with, with them. And some people were saying, I am a Paulite. Paul's my guy. Whatever Paul says, that's the deal. Others I of Apollos. Apollos had also accompanied Paul to Corinth. And they liked Apollos. He was a man of the word. This was a guy who was known as a Bible dictionary. He was very theologically attuned. And some people said, Apollos is my guy. Others said, nah, Cephas, Peter. Peter's my guy, rough and tumble, strong, passionate. And then you have, it looks like, well, the right answer is in the end, I am of Christ. That's not the right answer. Because these were people who said, ha, you have human leaders. I don't have any allegiance to anybody except Christ. Jesus and I, dynamic duo. They were shunning spiritual leadership. So you have some people who put too much emphasis on a spiritual leader and became a devotee of them over Christ and some people who put too little emphasis on spiritual leaders and believe that they and Christ could sort out their whole life and theological nuances and the canon themselves without any aid. 
As Christians, we do not want to be people who follow a leader in Christ's church, but rather a people who find our identity and purpose and meaning and unity and mission and allegiance in Jesus Christ. However, that does not undermine the gifted men that God has given us. It's perfectly normal, by the way, to have a special affection for a person who led us to Christ, a person who led us in Christ, a favorite teacher, a pastor, someone who's fed us the word for a long time, a Sunday school teacher, a care group leader, an elder, a deacon who has counseled and consoled us, just a friend who's discipled us. To have affection for them is a wonderful thing. But such affection becomes disloyalty and carnal when it's allowed to segregate us from others in the church because of our affection for that leader. Then it becomes self-centered, self-willed exclusiveness. It's the antithesis of unity. They were claiming Paul, Paulus, Peter, some saying I'm too spiritual for any kind of leader. I have Christ myself. So what? So ask yourself, where's your allegiance? Ask yourself, where is your allegiance? Every true spiritual leader, and I know this of your elders who I meet with regularly, every true spiritual leader, and it's true of the men who, have, who are leading us in our church, ought to be more concerned that loyalty is attached to the Lord Jesus than to personalities, people. How do you know where your allegiance is? What are you known for? We're looking at Paul and Peter and Apollos. But again, are you more attuned to what you heard on Facebook or Fox News than you are the Bible? What are you known for? What do you talk about? What are you passionate about? He gets personal in verse 13. Has Christ been divided? This is his body. He'll go on in chapter 12 to talk about how the ridiculous nature. Can you imagine if I was standing here trying to preach and my right hand just continued punching myself in the face? You would say, that's awkward. That's odd. That's weird. He uses that illustration as an illustration of what Christ's body looks like to the world when we don't get along. Christ hasn't been divided. Then he gets very personal. Why are you following me? Paul was not crucified for you. He refers to himself in the third person. Was he or were you baptized in the name of Paul? No. It's not his name they were baptized in. Paul was only a compass that pointed to Jesus. If you want to know the most important virtue of Christian leadership, it is this. Any Christian leader worth his ministry ought to be more concerned about allegiance to Christ in the people they know than attention to himself or his opinions. Now, we can talk about spiritual leaders, but that's also true of all of us. If you are known in your neighborhood, at work, in your family, at dinner, as someone who has more opinions about the election and face masks than you do about the greatness of God and the the wonder of salvation something's out of balance. 
He gets testimonial in verse 14. I thank God that I baptized none of you. This is, this is almost a little humorous because it, you can hear as he's writing, he's, he's kind of reflecting and remembering as he's going along. I'm, I'm glad, I thank God I baptized none of you, well, well, hang on, except two guys, Crispus and Gaius, and that no man should say you were baptized in my name. He says, it's a good thing that, that you didn't attach your association with Christ, that's baptism, with association with me. Footnote. Look, if, if um, the, the day that I was able to baptize my sons was a very special day. Sometimes when we see Adam baptizing some of the students in student ministries, he's had a significant impact. That, that's a sweet, affectionate thing. That, there's nothing wrong with that. But when you leave that moment and say, huh, you know who I was baptized by? Adam Buletail. <laughs> really? I was baptized by Aaron. Huh, I got you all. Myra baptized me. You can go on and on. Or Bob or Rick or the elder. It goes on and on. That's what he's arguing against is bragging on those things rather than the fact that I was baptized as a demonstration of my love for the Lord and relationship with him as we saw just earlier. He keeps remembering in verse 16. Now, I, I did also baptize the household of Stephanus and beyond that, he basically says, I don't remember. I do not know whether I baptized any other, so neither should they have bragged on Paul than him to say, huh, I baptized Stephanus. That was me. No. It was theological misunderstanding. It was attaching spiritual realities to people rather than to the author of those spiritual realities, the Lord himself. He's actually thankful that he baptized so few of the Corinthians who could claim that he was their leader. But this is really all somewhat introductory to this last subpoint: disagreements about ministry. The argument is concluded. The exclamation point is penned in verse 17. For Christ did not send me, there's his apostleship, to baptize. Stop right there. It, it, does that cause anybody any heartburn? It should. Wait a minute. I thought the Great Commission was go, make disciples, baptize them. Paul's saying, well, no, he didn't send me to baptize. He's not saying that he wouldn't or didn't baptize. He just told us three people in a household, a family, did they baptize? What he is saying is that that's collateral and subordinate to the primary purpose, which is in the next phrase, but to proclaim, to preach the gospel. There's the accent, there's the priority, there's the ultimate value to talk about, to know, to share, to spread, to, to describe, to, to plumb the depths of the gospel. Can I suggest that even though he's talking about spiritual leaders in the church, this applies to every parent, every grandparent, every disciple or every Sunday school teacher, every children's worker, Using influence for and towards Christ. Then he says something that he's going to expand on in chapter 2. Not in superiority or cleverness of speech. 
Paul had a very strong self-awareness, it seems, from chapter 2, that he was not a great rhetorician, not a great speaker. Now, his own self-reflection could be argued against when you read like Acts 17. I think he was pretty good in the pulpit. But there was a whole genre of people, there were a whole group of people um, who, who made their living giving speeches. You see this form represented in Plato and in Socrates and when Plato's talking through the mouth of Socrates and Aristotle where the way you said it and it's important was as important as what you said Paul said I didn't come to you like great sermons great outlines good illustrations wasn't clever can I just say something briefly about our attraction this is seems so self-serving but Please don't take it as that. Praise God for the day in which we live where we can listen to great men of God preaching all over the internet, literally all over the world. And we all have favorites, don't we? Well, boy, I do. There are people that I enjoy listening to, that I prefer listening to, um, and, and I know you do as well. One of the things Paul is saying is don't, and he'll say this in the first five verses of chapter two explicitly, don't be wooed by great speakers away from the spiritual leaders who know you and know you well. Listen, listen to these brothers who are great preachers. Listen to them, learn from them, profit them, but know that those guys you're listening to on the internet don't know the names of your family. They don't pray for your family. They don't get together with a group of men on 5.30 on Friday mornings that your elders do and pray systematically about you and through the membership. They don't know you, so appreciate who they are and what they teach you, but when you begin comparing them to the people who teach you in your church, you're getting awfully close to a danger line Look at the last phrase, that the cross of Christ, the place for atonement, should not be made void. Wow. Reverse engineer that verse. How does, what does that mean? The cross could be made void by putting too much emphasis on those who speak well, even if they speak about Christ, instead of the gospel reality that Paul was sent to preach in verse 17 that can elbow Christ out of the way because of clever speakers, clever preachers. The cross of Christ is the symbol of Christianity. The cross of Christ is the power of Christianity. The cross of Christ is the message of Christianity. The cross of Christ is the priority of Christianity. And the cross of Christ is the meaning of Christianity. That's why he says... He doesn't want the cross nullified, made void, made empty because allegiance is shifted to men. Can we stretch it? To politics, to views on masks, to views on social justice. Those are important issues that have theological implications. But if those become the issues that divide our church, we are missing the priority that Christ has left us with, that Paul has preached to us that we have the gospel that we hold most precious. And if you think masks are a conspiracy and if you think masks need to be worn 24-7, that should not divide us in the church. 
And if it does, it's an expression of immaturity. It's an expression of not loving. It's an expression of not caring. Now, let's, can we, we've said it a hundred times. Can I say it again? There are people who shouldn't wear masks, who can't wear masks. They have breathing issues. They have COPD. They have asthma. I, what that means is in this place and in this room, we come and we automatically, automatically default to giving, default to giving them the benefit of the doubt, right? And we assume that there's a reason they're not wearing it and that's between them and the Lord and we're gonna love and care for them nonetheless. I mean, imagine Satan in his boardroom with his demons in January. How stupid would this have sounded? Okay, guys, in a few months, I've got a plan that I'm gonna divide Christ's church by getting people mad at each other, by getting people not deferring to one another, by getting people irritated with each other based on whether they wear a surgical mask. Would anyone have believed that? I wouldn't have. And he's done it! Let's not let him do it here. Not here. Paul is consumed with correcting the Corinthians' misguided loyalties. He doesn't want the cross of Christ, the gospel, to be made void. Listen, North America is full of, it's actually the cradle of rugged individualism. And there's a point of that I really like. Um, We're all products of that, that mindset. But I believe the Lord is calling us here in these verses to come back to a mutual dependence, mutual association, a mutual deferring that puts our rugged independence and our platform of democracy behind our Christian commitment. Can I ask you a few questions? Do you let people's different views of mask wearing erode your love for them? Oh, can I ask you another question? Do you, do you let that erode your confidence in your leaders at Mission Road? This is not a secret and there's so many people, I'm not revealing any names here. I've had long discussions, multiple discussions with people who say, it's a conspiracy, this mass thing, you're just, you're just participating in, in this grand deception and if, if the government can make you wear masks, they're gonna make you do worse things next year and there's, it's all conspiracy. And then I've had people who are afraid to go out of their house without a mask and have said, thank you for wearing masks. If, if, if the elders suspend that, I, 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 I can't come to church and I'll, I may have to find another one. So what do you do? What do you do? We don't do what pleases either. We want to do what's right. And what's right is prayer villages ask us to wear masks. And if there are reasons not to, then take those reasons. But until there's a reason not to, it doesn't keep us from worship. It doesn't make us sin. We're gonna, we're gonna stand in that. Can I ask you another question? Do you allow your passions to be expressed more about politics and conspiracies than the advancement of the gospel? Rewind the tape over the last month. 
What have you been most passionate about? Have you wept over your neighbors and the fact that they're going to a Christless eternity more than you have said something political about the race or the, the, uh, the, 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 the COVID or, or mass or you name it. Where are your passions? Because where are your passions? That's where your life is defined. Let me ask you a similar question. What makes you angry? What makes you afraid? Whatever makes you angry or afraid reveals what you're most passionate about. Show me what makes a man angry or a woman angry. Show me what makes them fearful and you can very easily discern what's going on in their theological worldview. Anything other than the gospel as the answer to these questions reveals misplaced allegiances and misplaced values. Listen, we all dislike distancing. We all dislike masks. I think most of us dislike going 35 miles an hour on Mission Road. Does that not seem a little slow? (laughs) Some of us have been corrected when we've not done that. How many times have you heard this? It's important for us to keep the main thing, the main thing folks we're in a test I am convinced that you as an individual in our church our local church body and evangelicalism is is a test without going into this we've talked about this in the book of James before the the parismos the word for trial and the word for temptation same word same word So we're all experiencing this trial, these trials that become temptations. But temptations to do what? Temptations to be suspicious of God's character and suspicious that he's not sovereign and suspicious that he doesn't care and suspicious that he's not good and suspicious that he doesn't know. Don't be suspicious of God. He does know. He does care. He is sovereign. He's paying attention. He is paying attention to his world and us in it. Make sure your love for your brothers and sisters in Christ is greater than your passion for your opinions. And then the cross of Christ will not be made void. I think that's your motivation. I trust that's your motivation. Let me pray.